LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Paul Sutton. Many current social, cultural, political, and economic trends are deeply disturbing. All the more so because so many people are unaware of, or simply ignore them. Gathering pace in the 21st century, both 9-11 and the pandemic were key temporal markers in the acceleration of these trends. A further sinister undercurrent lies in where they overlap, and the fact that they are serving an overarching agenda that is profoundly anti-freedom, anti-human, and even anti-life. One of the most obvious manifestations is the unelected so-called elites and tech gurus loudly preaching do as we say, not as we do, while pushing transhumanism and fanatical technocratic dictatorship on fearful populations. We analyse our present predicament with particular reference to parallels in dystopian science fiction. You have asked, are we happy? Are we happy and effective? Consultation with leading experts in the field makes it perfectly clear, perfectly clear, that we are all now programmed for perfect happiness, perfect happiness, perfect happiness, perfect happiness. There are, of course, occasional technical or electronic errors in programming and or surveillance which produce perverse exceptions. First they start skipping prescribed drug dosages, then they begin touching, then indulging in various sexual acts, and the ultimate perversion, love. For such extreme psychobiological misfunction, only isolation will do. You know how a game serves us, nations are bankrupt, gone, none of that tribal warfare anymore. Even the corporate wars are a thing of the past. Now we have the majors and their executives. Transport, food, communication, housing, luxury, energy, a few of us making decisions on a global basis. Now everyone has all the comforts, you know that. No poverty, no sickness, no needs, and many luxuries which you enjoy, just as if you were in the executive class. Corporate society takes care of everything. But all it asks of anyone, or is ever asked of anyone ever, is not to interfere with management decisions. You still don't get it, do you, boys? There ain't no countries anymore. No more good guys. They're running the whole show. They own everything, the whole goddamn planet. They can do whatever they want. What's wrong with having it good for a change? And they're going to let us have it good if we just help them. They're going to leave us alone. Let us make some money. You can have a little taste of that good life, too. Now, I know you want it. Hell, everybody does. What's the threat? We all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. Hello and welcome, Paul, and thank you so much for joining us again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Oh, thanks so much for having me again, Greg. I really enjoyed the previous one, and I'm sure I'll enjoy this just as much. 
Excellent. Well, yeah, there's a link to our previous uh, conversation on the website page for this one. Uh, your blog came to my attention and that inspired um, our original chat. Uh, just before we get started on this one, which is basically a follow-up to the previous one, just give listeners a little potted bio. Yeah, sure. Well, um, well, I, I originally studied science at University of Oxford, did a doctorate, a as it's called here, uh, worked in industry for a bit. I'd always been very keen on writing, did a lot at university, and uh, worked in industry for a bit, uh, well, for a long time. And then I, I'd always wanted to go into teaching, and I went into teaching English because um, I was doing a lot of writing and so on, having a lot of stuff published, poetry mainly, but of a particularly extreme and satirical sort of well, hyper-reality, really. Um, and then taught English uh, for a number of years, but recently left because um, of various issues that have arisen in the kind of woke indoctrination, which I talked about a lot last time. And um, But since been doing this blog against monolithic diversity, um and uh, yeah, lots of articles on there that kind of, particularly ones on corporate dystopia and the nightmare of managerialism, which I'd always been fascinated with and seen it throughout my time in industry as well. Yeah, well, I encourage listeners to go back and check out the previous dialogue, but they don't have to if they can, this, this can be listened to uh, in isolation. But as mentioned, it's really a continuation today, and we're really talking about social, cultural, and political trends currently, particularly in the West, where they overlap, uh, perhaps in ways that people don't really observe openly. If there's an agenda driving these things or agendas, perhaps one overarching agenda, that the how and why of what's happening, because so many people are, are mystified and bamboozled by events around them. They don't just can't understand it. You know, that it's that they're suffering tremendous cognitive dissonance. And we can talk a bit about where this might be headed in future. Uh, to get us started, I mean, corporate corporatism and you know, corporatism versus capitalism, something we'll get into uh, more or less straight away. But you right. used the term there, managerialism. So perhaps you could just, that, and this is by, not as technical as it might sound, but just uh, get us started with saying what, that, what your conception of that is, what, what that is within your writing. Well, my first came, I, I first became acquainted with the term like so much else with me, by reading Orwell and reading a review of uh, he'd written on James Burnham's famous book, The Managerial Revolution, which actually was looking at Stalinism and um, but also looking at the American corporate world. And this is back in the 30s and 40s. And what Burnham was talking about was how a new technocratic elite was arising who really were not interested in ideology, they'd serve anything, but they were convinced, um, really, that the world was heading for a post-political future, which is bizarre when he was particularly talking about Stalinism, where the focus was intensely on the political at an individual level. But actually, he could see the motivation for the technocrats, including scientists, was entirely power-driven. Our managerialism has now slowly but surely i mean when i was first in industry in the well, late 80s we saw bizarre things which people probably don't remember or maybe weren't around for it. i don't know if you were great total quality management bizarre concepts taken from japan and we were indoctrinated with this stuff that most of us thought was gobbledygook and then you know various other things 
if you worked for a big corporation, I worked for Centrica, British Gas, and also Shell. Um, and it was increasingly obvious that, and particularly the people one worked with, they were not really interested in anything other than managing. And it has always been a bizarre aspect of life to me to be told so-and-so was in management. Um, and now, of course, the workplace is completely run by these people. So uh, human resources now took over from personnel and the power they wield is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. In fact, we have a technocratic government where really politics is an embarrassment to them. Uh, yeah, I think it absolutely is. And I, I wonder, I mean, look at the increasing irrelevance of political parties in most Western yeah. countries, you know, particularly, I may say that parties somehow in the US or the UK, to take best known examples for us probably, are irrelevant but certainly not fulfilling the the roles that they were set out for and certainly politics not functioning um by any shadow of a definition of what it might have done uh, a century ago or even 50 years ago i'm just wondering if maybe i've always made fun of francis fukuyama's yeah. um, end of history book and i'm wondering if this post-political future which you could argue that we're if not already in and moving into was misread somehow that if mm. if traditional party politics goes away as you see in so many futuristic dystopias in fiction that that somehow meant the end of history that history was somehow all about wars and politics and if the technocrats could just get the reins of power that um that would pretty much be it we're playing sailing from then on that's such a brilliant point i mean there's another brilliant essay by Orwell about hg wells um who in many ways is a very admirable figure an incredible imagination but Wells had this bizarre idea for a, an elite run, uh, the world to be run by an elite and um, the technocrats and scientists would remove any need for human passions. And this is from an era where, of course, they seen the horrors of so much from industrialization. But I think nobody predicted where this would lead to. And the technocratic elite now are terrifying. And what's so terrifying about them, of course, is that they are absolutely convinced that they're sane and we're all mad and that that we're all bigoted atavistic and they are calmly rational we've seen this so often in all the kind of discourse now over covid over brexit over anything really that they they they'll always claim they're evidence-based they're very dispassionate um and these people are fanatics actually if you look at how they wielded power particularly during covid as i think crystallized so much for us or for many of us although most of us were talking about a lot of this beforehand um and i think it does date from what you're talking about and i think fukuyama maybe i like you i, I assumed that it was a load of nonsense he was talking about the ideal of a liberal elite but then that's a, a bizarre thing with tony blair and the new world new kind of liberal um, interventionism and everything. I look back now and realise that I was very naive about a lot of that stuff, to be honest. Yeah, well, the word liberal, like a lot of terms, mm. has become corrupted in Orwellian fashion to the point where, you know, liberal became, um, to eat out of that particular context, but if you describe yourself as oh, liberal in terms perhaps of social attitudes or whatever, mm. that, um, that suddenly became turned into like, oh, you're one of these liberal types, as in like anything goes mm. Uh, mm. and nothing matters. Um, you see that now, particularly amongst young people. You know, if someone's described as a classic liberal, they might as well somehow be a Nazi. I'm not quite sure how that came about, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, these, these terms evolve over time. Language does. I was talking a moment ago about 
dystopias in in fiction, futuristic fiction. And I think that a lot of ideas in society and culture first manifest in in fiction. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then they, for, for good or ill, uh, then perhaps bleed out into the wider society. You know, a lot of science fiction writers have been very prescient. We're just talking yeah. about Orwell, for example. And one of your recent posts, you mentioned uh, J.G. Ballard. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, science fiction authors. A couple of books of his that I've never read, which but I looked up, uh, Super Can yeah. and uh, Kingdom Come. And yeah. when I was looking at the synopsis for those, I immediately started to think about all of the you know things like Davos, you know, where the elites yeah. of the world gather to carve out our collective fate. Um, about um, how these people live versus how they say that we should all live. Mm. Gated communities, and then mm. I start to think about other fiction, fictional concepts like you know the film you've seen the film Elysium, uh, yeah. which features the elite living off planet. But it's the same basic concept. It's like do what we say, not what we do. And also then in Ballard's books, the ones I mentioned, and in many others, uh, a so-called utopia actually being a quite obvious dystopia, but still yeah. being spun as a utopia. You know, in 1984, they're told they're living in utopia. In Brave New World, they're living in yeah. utopia. Whereas in Supercan, for example, you have, quote, an underworld of crime, deviant <laughs> sex, and drugs amongst the elite. And hang on a minute, that's not fiction. That's, that, that's, re that's real life. <laughs> Well, it's funny. I've just reread, not because of this interview, but I've just reread Supercan. I'm an absolute um, Ballard fanatic. Um, and he, he has this very clear transition. You probably ones you've read are the earlier ones like Concrete Island or High Rise or the ones on the drowned, you know, the sort of global warming. Yeah, I'm and thinking you... particularly of, of, of High Rise, you know, which yeah. has got a lot of uh, commonalities, Concrete Island. So they're the ones that bring to mind you know the 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 brutalist um yeah. architecture and future visions as they were in the yeah. in the 60s and 70s yeah and it's so fascinating you know this is what's so amazing about science fiction you I, I think back to watching tomorrow's world and things and raymond baxter and you know all that and what ballard then changed into really with um well the, the trilogy that i've read the middle one of cocaine nights is the first one the, and as you say quite well summarized they're all about gated communities so cocaine nights then um the one i've just reread well i've reread them all super can and then um the millennium people so super um cocaine nights is set in um the south of spain in the endless kind of um timeshare uh boredom but perfection world of kind of the holiday resorts really and these extraordinary retirement places where Ballard used to go quite often and drive around and he's a great one for uh, that's what I love about Ballard he he found business parks and the retail parks and also these places so much more interesting than the kind of North London um, gentrification or any of that stuff and he was so ahead of his time in this um, and in that one in all, mostly all of these novels, you have a kind of strange Prospero-like figure who's often a psycho psychologist or something who um, is actually a madman. <laughs> They're very funny as well. That's the point. So in in, in Cocaine Nights, um, the, the community needs waking up, really, because they're all brain-dead people just retired there. So they have a kind of sports director, um, entertainment guy, who instigates a crime wave to... Um, pet people up 
and he breaks into apartments and drags things off. And there's a great line where he says to someone, um, believe you me, there's nothing that wakes people up more than finding a turd floating in a swimming pool. And I can't go into everything in it. And then the next one, Supercan, is set in the south of France in the business world of a huge business park where um, another Prospero character, um, Penrose Wilder, the name Penrose is deliberate after a neuroscientist. And he, this guy is the kind of central medical figure, but he he wants to, he's noticed that the people are working too hard and they won't take any leisure because they love being part of the managerial elite and everything. And this is a huge business park with companies like um, uh, Roche and all the pharmaceutical giants there, etc. And uh, so he he has people um, literally forming a sort of bizarre crime gang where they go mug uh, immigrants in the um, the local areas of of Cannes and Nice, and it, it produces a huge upswing in in mental health and physical health. And he regards it as like a kind of a, a you know an inoculation almost of violence uh, to help with the the, the problem that. Ballard identified as we all suffer from, which is boredom. Um, there's an interview with Ballard where he's asked, what do you think the future will be like? And most science fiction writers would be full of stuff about, um, you know, the technical changes. And he said, well, I, I don't know, but one thing is the future will be boring. <laughs> and he said, boredom is taking over and we're fighting endlessly against it, but we're not winning. Well, that's largely due, due to... Um the limits of our thinking about what we are yeah uh, you know uh, in terms of like bigger sort of cosmological picture i mean that's getting into metaphysics we don't really have time for but the endless materialism yeah has brought us to this place where we are now never mind in, in these fictional stories but where you know where we all find ourselves i don't think you or i are, are bored with life but you know no, no. billions of people are and that's because we're, we've been told that there that there is uh, nothing else than what we see on the TV screen, never mind out the window. And this brings us, I suppose, to, again, thinking about fiction and the future. A lot of people in the last few years have talked about, you know, in Orwellian terms about, oh, we're living in 1984. And mm. a, a fewer people have said, oh, we're living in Brave New World. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of feel it's kind of a an awful kind of synthesis of the two at the minute, really, in terms of trends. You know, we see kind of... um technological advances continuing in terms of you know surveillance control and you know medication and data on anything and everything and things being increasingly virtual and dehumanized and at the same time increasing kind of griminess and material deprivation and people doing less well materially than they used to and and you know lifespans even decreasing in so-called advanced nations so it's a strange kind of um farrago of things happening at the minute really a closer vision would be, in ter- again, in terms of fiction, you could look at something like Blade Runner as, yeah, pra- yeah. as, as perhaps being, you know, the marriage of these two ideas, you know, advanced technology, but just kind of a lot of a grain at the same time. Some people doing very well, other people just falling under the falling into the gutter, I suppose. Yeah, it's a fascinating one, really. I mean, uh, I wrote this, this blog about the culture of dystopia, and I think one of Orwell, you know, he, he was fantastic at foreseeing things, but he... He's very political, and um, you know, it's the, his his prescience was outstanding, and particularly over language and how that would be used. But in terms of technology, you know, Orwell never worked in industry. He he was you know worked as a military policeman, and then 
um, came out to this country and really wrote. Uh, he worked in the media a bit. But what he never foresaw, and this is why he, why he was so excited by Burnham, was the, the rise of corporatism and the extraordinary way that technology... I mean, the technology is hinted at in 1984, but this is where Huxley was, was you know, he was a scientist, Huxley, um, and he was better on that. And then the one who's better again on it, I'm not saying a better writer, but just in terms of of maybe the ideas that they came up with, is the, you've mentioned Philip K. Dick uh, with, with Blade Runner, but a number of the others really as well. The, you, I've heard a number of your interviews where you talk about the blue, the red pill and the blue pill, all that. Um, the Matrix, all those ideas kind of come from Philip K. Dick. And this, I think, technology is always very difficult for all of us to understand how it's driven everything. Political change actually often follows technology. And I think that's one of the things. So politics has a limit. Um, and, you know, you, you're right there where you say, well, are we really living in the Orwellian world? A lot of it is just technology driven. I say just that is the problem. And now people are starting to say, I know that there's worries that AI will take over and that we'll lose all of humanity. Yes. Orwell, or I suppose. And, and even Huxley seeing um, technology as, you know, as a tool of coercion mm. and control, um, you know, being exploited by elites or shadowy figures, whatever. Whereas the emerging situation at the minute is more, who's really in control technology mm. is influencing those who are creating technology, which influences the technology they create. And so it goes. And then you begin to wonder about, um, you know, who's, who's really, who's driving is anybody driving? And um, yeah, it becomes the technology, I suppose, I think uh, we've seen, you know, in our lifetimes, the exponential growth in say, for example, at simple terms, computing power, but how that has then fed out into everything else. I mean, I read lots of, um, futuristic fiction uh, when I was a teenager in the 80s and continued to read it throughout my life. But mm. time and time again, with few exceptions, the reality is tended to outstrip yeah. the, the, the the fictional element. The one exception being space travel, that's actually turned out to be the, the reverse, the inverse, mm. you know, but that's just completely stolen. So it seems yeah. we're going nowhere on that front. But in terms of technological advances, you know, within the sort of 24-7 technological matrix that we're all immersed in, well, that's just, uh, that's gone faster than anyone could have imagined. It is. It's really interesting you mentioned all that. And I'm thinking of another writer who's really influenced me, which is completely different. And he read 1984 when Orwell was on his deathbed, and he was very excited by it. And no one would make this link, but it's true. Evelyn Waugh, the great English sat satirical writer, and he visited Orwell when he was dying at UCH of TB. And he recognised, because he was a brilliant writer and a genius, really, how prophetic 1984 was. But he made a point, and he said, I don't believe religion could disappear in the way that you have it disappearing. And what fascinates me, a different strand to our discussion, is how actually, with all this technology, we're still, we're, in some ways, we're regressing to a more atavistic and a more quasi-religious kind of mindset as well. So the technocratic and managerial elite, their vision of how human nature would just slot into this seems to be completely not working. And this is something Ballard's very strong on. This is why he has such violence mixed in with the technology. Of course, his famous book, Crash, about a group of weirdos who are obsessed with car crashes and see great physical and sexual attraction in it. 
So I think we we also, in weird ways, are regressing back to a kind of mythological. And um, and I was very taken with your talk the other day about this sort of thing. There's a strange, bizarre juxtaposition the two going on. Well, I think in Rearview World we saw you know the attempt to to placate the population with mm. with pleasures or not so much punishments as in 1984, but you know drugs and freedom from physical discomfort and all the rest of it. But then you know the that they might reach a certain point uh, where certain human beings do do zone out. I think we we can see that you know that can be done with not only physical but psychological means. But a lot of humans do you know crave something visceral and even atavistic, as you say. And it, many of the dystopian futuristic visions um, in fiction uh, involve just that sort of you know rebellion, something in, mm. within the innate within the human, something primordial. And it, you see that in the, you mentioned violence, and that's quite often you, you see that in uh, you know people who do extreme sports and things, or people who perhaps um, do hard drugs. That they're looking for something transcendent, and mm. sometimes if they can't find that within themselves, this external stimulus, even if it is violence, sadomasochism could be something like that. You know, mm. anything at all, committing crime, you know, mm. so it can be something legal or Ill- illegal, but, you know, that's a that's a movable feast, depending on what area you live in. Uh, in, in Ballard's High Rise, we see that mm. as this community living in this enormous, um, what it says on the tin, high rise uh, apartment development, you know, with the best of everything. But you see the hierarchy of society mirrored in mm. the floors of the building, but how that descends increasingly into, at the, towards the end, actually unimaginable depravity. Yeah, uh, and, and and violence uh, in in a society that, on the face of it, uh, this corporate society that is, um, you know, in which the needs of everyone are provided for by you know by the no longer by the state, of course, but by the, you know the corporation. Again, this is a post political idea, isn't it? You know, the after political systems have uh, atrophied and fallen away and ceased to be useful to whoever it's replaced by the corporate state. Um, a really good example of this is Rollerball. Yeah, um, yeah. The movie, which was based on a short story, you know, one of the leaders of one of the big corporate entities says at one, at one point to one of the protagonists, you know, there, there are no wars anymore, you know, no countries, and everyone is, you know, needs are provided for. There's no um, hunger, you know, no illness, blah blah blah. But even then, the whole premise of the film is that they have this game, rollerball, this extreme violence, and it's bread and circus is really Roman Empire oh, style, you know. Well. The one I'm thinking of that my daughter was really tired. I haven't read the book. The Hunger Games, of course. If you think about the Hunger Games, why was mm. that so popular? That feeds the whole premise of the Hunger Games is that you've got this society, but of course they worship violence in this ritualistic way. And I think one of the points about, and this is something even more effectively, who isn't is now the least politically correct of writers, but he really was always aware that civilization is is paper thin. And he, he basically was not a progressive, to say the least. He'd be described as a reactionary. But his view was, it's a full-time job keeping the peace. That's all that government can do. Forget all the other stuff, utopianism. He was the ultimate anti-utopian. But in many ways, uh, you know, he, could, he understood a lot from that. And one of his great novels, probably his greatest, A Handful of Dust, the line taken from T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, has incredible um, modern power to it. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it ends in a nightmare, a dystopian nightmare, actually, 
of a man reading endlessly Dickens to a semi-savage in the South American jungle where he's gone as an explorer. Um, and I think one of the powers of religion, and I'm an atheist, is it, especially Christianity, it always has accepted the dark side of human nature. And that's the whole point of it, obviously, with um, salvation and that. One of the problems with the technocratic elite is, where is that in their worldview? That's why they always need us, you know, people who are cast out, people who are literally, oh, they're not rational, because they all religions, and there's this one, they need the devil. And so the devil for them is the people who aren't accepting their cold, rational view of everything. Well, I mean, one of the current strands of salvationism, I suppose, in a post-religious world, it doesn't mean that the the tendency isn't religious, but you know, it's it's seen as outside man-made spiritual systems. Is that the whole alien thing? You know, mm. off off-world salvationism will be saved from ourselves by some other entities from elsewhere that's very similar to it's you know it's it's religious when you break it down uh, and that's separate from the idea of the existence of any other type of life you know in the cosmos yeah that's a sort of like a, you know that's an interesting scientific question but in terms of you know the constant uh, ideas of um government disclosure and um uh you know where earth is you know we're being watched over by you know benevolent extraterrestrials which not what will not allow us to destroy ourselves and all of that it again it's just projecting outward all the time mm. our salvation lies elsewhere rather than within ourselves yeah um and, and another the, another writer that i think um is very worth discussing i don't know if you've read much by theodore dalrymple i think i've got a book of his collected articles yeah yeah. Did he? Is he is, did he publish um, our culture? What's left of it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's that's the one I've got. Yeah. Well, he's got a brilliant essay on Ballard. Very good essays on on, and he's particularly good on dystopias and why the twentieth century was so rich in dystopias. Um, and you know, he had he came up with a quote which I think is so powerful: where um, dreams are blueprints, nightmares are the result, and he he's again he'd be regarded as a reactionary figure but he he worked for years it's a pseudonym theodore dalrymple his real name is anthony daniels something like that he's a doctor by training and he worked as a psychiatrist as well but he's by no means uh enamored that much of the psychiatry profession um and nor is ballard for that matter either but and he was a doctor or at least started reading medicine at cambridge um, and uh, Dalrymple worked as a prison doctor in the prison, not full-time, but he, he was a consultant, but he worked, did a lot of work in prisons. And his essays on the kind of nightmare of the actual underclass that we have in Britain and, and throughout the world, actually, are so worth reading. And he is particularly acute on the awful mismatch with utopian thinking. And um, now, if he was in the health service, goodness, I mean, he wouldn't survive, I'm sure, with the kind of um, the bizarre juxtaposition of these idealistic things with things falling apart. Yeah, well, that tension between dystopia and utopia, you know, mm. the, the former being, uh, sorry, the latter being promoted and advertised as the former, we see that in um, 
again, something I think that's breaking down now has been for a while, <clears throat> you know, the promised consumerist future, materialist mm. future, materialism in terms of lifestyle now promised increasingly for you know, around the world. It's all really taking off, I suppose, after the Second World War uh, in the US, you know, boom time in the 50s. And that gradually filtered out into the West predominantly, but other countries, de facto Western countries, you know, parts of Australasia and on and on. Mm. And with that beginning to go away, we have this kind of replacement coming in, as I mentioned, actually, in my last interview with Kingsley Dennis. Yeah. You know, this idea now that we're going to be doing materially less well, but actually that is going to be you know, spun as a, a source of happiness as well. So we want to, you'll get your your blenders and your fridge freezers and all the rest of it, however it would have been spun in the 1950s. <laughs> That'll make you happy. But now well, actually the, the, the machinery and the, the resources to deliver those is, is becoming tricky. Uh, so we're going to spend the lack of those things as a positive. Yeah. Well, I think I, I want to get back. I, I totally agree with that. But what's interesting, and, and in a way you're just verging on there, the green agenda and how the hair shirt aspect of that and how, you know, look, we're facing this catastrophe, and I'm not saying we are. I'm just saying that's the narrative. We're facing this catastrophe. So, look, you've had it so good. We've all had it so good. But, you know, now we're going to have to cut back. And the we here is not the we, is it? Your Blairs and people like that, your Bill Gates, they won't be cutting back. Okay, so really what they're preaching is, well, they're preaching water but drinking wine, albeit uh, heavily disguised, but they're flying around to all the conferences and things like that. And there's a quasi-religious element to it as well, very much. Really, it's the idea of, look, industrialization has been a horror. I mean, it's so bizarre because you've got people preaching this who, whose everything they've, they've got relies on industrialization. And the idea of a pre-industrial world is a nightmare. So anyway, the, the, but the kind of narrative that they like to preach is very much that we, and it's never them, but we, we have, must atone for this. So, you know, people will be poorer, but you'll be happier. Um. But what's missing from this, of course, is maybe we're tired of, tired of materialism. We're sick and tired of it. There's vast areas of the world which would say, give us more of it, please. You know, we, we, um, we haven't had enough of this yet. And this is where there's this problem, and it links a bit to what we talked about before, where, you know, for instance, China is still, although it's industrialised massively, and something, they've still got a huge agrarian population that wants to move into the cities, let alone other parts of the world. And so, you know, our our position of, look, we've had everything and now we'll cut back because we need... It's not globally shared at all, whatever they're claiming. It is not at all. And the rise of China in particular, but also these other thing, places that are not swallowing this, and I'm not on their side here, I'm not taking sides, I'm simply saying our kind of ennui and our, you know, we're sated with materialism and everything... Yeah, I mean, tell that to people in Africa who still burn, have to burn, they haven't got electricity. So that's what's so fascinating here. Yeah, people in Africa are maybe still burning dung. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm not laughing at them, I'm just saying no, I, would, no. I, would, I wouldn't want to do that, but our ancestors probably did. You know, so many people in the West for quite some time, not necessarily connected with the green agenda, often not actually, have been simplifying their lives and downsizing yeah. a bit. Um, many people during the pandemic period went through that kind of epiphany thinking, actually, I don't really need all this stuff. So that trend's already in play, but that's not quite, that's that's fine if you're figuring that out and kind of choosing that for yourself and mm. working out your own way 
to you know shift your priorities it's not the same for people who are weaned on materialism as all there is you know materialism as a lifestyle and as a a worldview and then being told this is this stuff's going away mm. you know you, you might lose that house that you slaved day and night to, to to get a mortgage on and you you know you might you might have to sell your car and maybe you won't be able to take those foreign holidays those people are not mostly psychologically prepared to deal with that and you can see that in our everyday politics every day just you know and the, the politicians running around trying to square the circle you know trying to say you know we must you know go green go green at the same mm. time saying oh you know help for struggling families you know and it's, it's kind of it's kind of morbidly funny in a way amusing to watch just seeing them struggle to do this i suppose you'd sum it up in recent headlines in this country in the uk uh was like you know all motor vehicles sold new ones sold in this country must be fully electric uh by 2030 now that was revised that was brought forward originally it was 2040 then they thought let's get ambitious with the green thing and they made it 2030 just recently it's like uh okay 2035 which i predicted what anybody with half a brain cell (laughs) would have predicted so there you see the tension we've got to drive this climate agenda forward but If we poke the wasp's nest too much, there's going to be trouble. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com